So I've been saying to people, Happy New Year and Hopeful New Year, because I think hope is something that we need. Yesterday was New Year's Day, and that's actually when the church celebrates the name of Jesus, because Jewish boys back in Jesus' time were named eight days after they were born. And so if you count from December 25th, that means New Year's Day is the name of Jesus' day. And that's actually what we're going to be paying attention to today, not necessarily the lectionary, or it might not even be what you received in your children's handout, but we'll talk about the name of Jesus. And then next week, we'll talk about Epiphany, the wise men coming to offer Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And if you were in church today, you would see that the wise men have moved in from the narthex up to in front of the baptismal font. So they are traveling. That's thanks to Pastor Tom. He did that. And that's a good idea because the wise men are on their way and will celebrate Epiphany, or Three Kings Day, as our Latinx friends call it. Uh, we'll celebrate that next week. But today is the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus does have a special meaning for us, uh, not just because, of course, of who he was and all he did, but the name in itself can mean to save or to heal. It was a form of the word Joshua that we would say in English, Yeshua in Hebrew, and that means to save or to help. And I'll talk about it a little bit later. It means to heal. So I wonder if you know what your names mean. My name, Jim, is what I go by, but James is my name legally. And that's a form of, um, like in German, it's Jakobus. And sometimes for short, they just call you Kobus. <laughs> that's, that's the diminutive, like Jim would be in English. And the meaning of that, um, I don't know, it's not great. It's called the supplanter or someone who replaces. So I don't know what I'm replacing. But <laughs> the story of Jacob, who was the original name, that person supplanted his brother Esau and got his inheritance. So I'm not sure people think about that meaning of the name when they name people Jim or James. It can also mean a follower. And I don't know where they get that, but that's what it said on Google, so I have to believe it. So I'm wondering, I looked up, um, do you know, Francis, do you know what the meaning of that name is? No. No? I looked it up because I didn't know either. And it said it's a name from Latin that originated in France. And uh, when girls have the name Francis, it's, it's spinning off of the idea of Francesca. That's you know? what I was saying. That's what you were thinking? Yeah, yeah. And so in so, Spanish, my name is Francesca. Yes, exactly. It'd be similar in Spanish, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it can also mean that you're from France or that you're free. So there you go. That's the meaning of your name. And then I looked up Kelly. And that's an English form of an Irish last name. Yes. And it means... Google says it means bright-headed. So I don't know if that means that you're really bright 
or if your hair is light, I have no idea. Your hair isn't light. My hair is not light, but it doesn't matter whether your hair is light or not if your name is Kelly. That I'm pretty sure it means that I'm I'm pretty sure it means that you're smart, but just because you have that name doesn't mean you're going to turn into smart into be smart. That's true. That's true. If your so parents pick that name, your parents picked that name. You're going to be smart or turn into someone who's smart. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely your parents right. can pick the name Kelly. They pick the name Kelly. If that defies what Google says the word the name <laughs> Kelly means, then who cares? That's the name that your parents picked for you. Yeah. My my parents, I think they had several names that they thought about naming me because it was a big deal. When I was young, just like it was when the time of your birth, but around the time of Jesus, it was a really, really big deal how the child would be named. And most people got their names from like grandparents or great grandparents or an aunt or an uncle. It was a family name, just like we heard about uh, for, for John the Baptist. So today we celebrate the name of Jesus. And I, I think we celebrate all of our names and all of their meanings and uh, knowing that there is more to it than what we think when we call each other Kelly or Francis or Pastor Jim or whatever. Um, there's a lot behind names, and we'll talk about that more in the sermon. So you want to say, say a short prayer with me now, please? Gracious and loving God, you sent us your son, and you asked your angel to tell Mary and to tell Joseph to name him Jesus, which means our Savior and it means our healer, and it means our help. So may we live into our names and also the names of Jesus in Christ as we follow him day to day. Amen. Amen. So happy new year, and I've been telling people happy new year and hopeful new year. Okay. Happy new year. Thank you. We read this psalm together. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. That, of course, is the King James Version. And that was the historic entrance hymn, or the introit, taken from Psalm 8, for this observation of the name of Jesus, which occurs on New Year's Day. This psalm has messianic overtones, since Jesus did, in fact, become a little lower than the angels, which is what the old translation said, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, to become one of us. And St. Paul talks about that clearly in today's lesson. So in today's observation of the name of Jesus, we are taken back to the angel Gabriel's annunciation to our Lord's blessed mother. When he said to her, you are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be hailed as son of the most high. So Luke also gives us two other names from Gabriel, great and son of the most high. And it's interesting that Luke uses this most high name for God more frequently than any other Old Testament, excuse me, New Testament writer. The angel literally says, you will call his name Jesus. 
Jesus, a name that makes everything holy, even though it was a very ordinary name at the time of Jesus' birth. In the Gospel of Matthew, an unnamed angel appears to Joseph in a dream, you know the story, and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary for a wife, for the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. We'll come back to that idea later, and maybe in a whole sermon series, we'll find out. So, what's in a name? Well, one commentator says practically everything. That's why we talked about the meaning of our names this morning. Anna, too, is a Lutheran pastor in South Hadley, Massachusetts, and she has a blog series called The Caffeinated Lutheran, and so I liked her right away. And she writes that Jesus is born to poor young parents. He's named on the eighth day like every other Jewish boy would have been, and he becomes a refugee in Egypt at a very young age. But we are reminded that he is named by an angel before he is even conceived. Throughout scripture, names are given or changed to reflect new identities and new purposes. Jacob becomes Israel. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Names in scripture often convey place and purpose, purpose in the world. The name of Jesus can simply mean to save, and this was obviously a popular understanding at the time of Matthew. But another commentator says that the real root of Jesus or Joshua, because they were the same names, is a Hebrew particle which means help. We'll come back to that later as well. In our lesson today, we are reminded that Mary treasured all these words. And the word in Greek is not really word, it's all these utterances and pondered them in her heart. We're talking about what the linguists would call speech acts, when the word makes things happen, when the word changes things. It's like when someone say, I take you, Mary, I take you, Robert. Those words change things. There's a legal change of status, isn't it, in those pronouncements. So we're talking about what the linguists call speech acts, when the word makes things happen and when the word changes things. It's intriguing that Mary ponders these things not in her intellect, in her soul or her spirit, but in her heart. And Luke will remind us of this again later in the conclusion of the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Mary holds these things in the flesh of her heart, as one commentator says, remaining actively faithful to the son she bore even after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we know that's the case because Luke mentions Mary among the group at Pentecost who was gathering and praying. And so they call his name Jesus, just like the angel had said to Mary and the angel in the dream had said to Joseph. Martin Luther seems to be pondering acts of utterance as well. 
when he writes this concerning the creed. He says, I believe not less in God, though I am abandoned or persecuted by all. I believe nonetheless, though I am poor, foolish, untaught, and despised and lacking all things. I believe nonetheless, although I am a sinner, neither do I entreat God for a sign or token, for I would not tempt God. I trust, I trust continually in God, however long God tarries, and I set no term or time, no measure nor means. But in a true and trusting faith, I leave all things to the divine will. Since God is almighty, what could I want that God would not give or do for me? Since God is maker of heaven and earth, Lord of all things, who will rob me or harm me? Yes, why should not all things work together for my good, since I have found favor with God, to whom all things are subject in obedience? Because God is God, then God is able to make all things work for my good. Because God is Father, he desires to do so and gladly does it. That's some pretty dense Martin Luther. We should probably ponder that in our hearts. When God says something, it happens. It's a speech act, just like let there be light. Now, as I promised you earlier, we will have a look at the idea of Jesus helping or saving, saving us from our sins, as Matthew would put it. A number of years ago, when I was in seminary, I read a book called Salvation Means Creation Healed. And the author of the book took a very close look at the word in Greek that we use for saving or salvation. And it was his contention that the Greek word actually, at the time of Jesus, was used almost overwhelmingly from a medical standpoint, meaning saving as in healing. I have found that concept to be enormously helpful. And in fact, my Greek lexicon does indicate that healing is another possible translation of the word as well as saving. So maybe when the preacher on the street corner looks over at us and asks us, are you saved? We could ask the preacher, are you healed? That would be the start of an interesting conversation, I think. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is visiting with Nicodemus, we could translate Jesus' word as saying, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be healed. Does that sound good? I think it does. I am thinking that this understanding can be enormously helpful in terms of our sanctification. And I will probably be visiting with you about this every Sunday, one way or another, as long as I'm still able to be here. Our sanctification, our growth in grace, our holiness, our healing, our wholeness, they are all related words for a good reason. So in terms of our sanctification, not just our justification, about which Lutherans have so much to say, but about our sanctification, about which we Lutherans have so little to say. And maybe does this understanding of the word meaning to heal as well as to save, does that perhaps also illuminate the thoughts of St. Paul 
when he writes those amazing words that we heard, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Wow. Paul writes in the subjunctive, let the same mind. But it's still a daunting prospect, isn't it? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Is this not another way of looking at the concept to which our Methodist siblings refer when they speak of putting on Christ? I've given this a lot of thought the past six or seven years. And now I'm off script, and that's okay. Because ever since I read that book about salvation and healing, I've thought so much about folks that I've worked with who, they're Christians, they're believers, they're going to go to heaven, I have no doubt about it, and they're the same irascible, cranky, materialistic, judgmental, hostile, demanding people that they were 40 years ago. How does this happen? When I worked in Sun City, I was working with couples who were in terrible conflict, abusive relationships, and they were parked at a church in a pew every Sunday morning. How does this happen? How can this be? That's not just a rhetorical question. It's an urgent question. Why, after 2,000 years, has there not been more transformation? What are we missing? And I think we're missing out on this element of sanctification, of wholeness, of healing. You know, in, in, in German, uh, the, the, the word healing is very similar to the word holy and savior. They're all, they're all related. Our growth in grace, our sanctification, are becoming less judgmental, less cranky, less demanding, less materialistic, and more forgiving, more patient, more tolerant, even though I struggle using that word sometimes. So that if something small happens, like you're going down a hill at 40 miles an hour and suddenly the light turns yellow and you know you're going to have to put on the brakes and it's irritating. Really? Really? Our growth in grace and our sanctification people relates to the ability to say, oh, the light is yellow, I will slow down, I will stop. So I am inconvenienced for 20 seconds. Our sanctification, our growth in grace, refers to being able to step away from things that would be irritating for us and make us cranky so that we're not seized by our anger like a great Dane shaking a stuffed rabbit. We can take a breath, we can step back, we can say, wait, wait. I need not become angry about this. I need not snort when I'm standing in the grocery line and the person in front of me is taking hours picking through her purse, <laughs> which is one of my irritants. Uh, Brother David Steindl Ross would say, stand there, don't be angry, say a prayer of blessing. They'll wonder why they're having a nice day when they leave the grocery. 
It's because you've said a prayer of blessing. All of these things, folks, has, has to do with our sanctification, our growth in grace, our putting on Christ, our becoming different people because of who Jesus is. Back to the script. I am not making the suggestion that we abandon the language of saving or salvation because, of course, it is an unspeakable gift. We all know this. Having stood beside the casket at the graveyard, we know what an unspeakable gift it is as we drive away to look back and say, this is not the last time. It's an unspeakable gift. But I am rather suggesting that our healing, our sanctification, our growth in grace, begun in our baptisms, continues. It's a process. It's a work in which we can participate. And it happens right now. But how are we to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus in and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I would have you consider that the cultivation of a contemplative prayer practice is one such way. I, I spent three days once with Father Thomas Keating, who was the developer of Centering Prayer. And as a psychologist, I always remember his, his words. He was this tall, gaunt man with a deep voice. And he said, and so we quiet our minds and we still our hearts in centering prayer so that the Holy Spirit can do psychotherapy. That was a goose bumper for me. But we got to give her a chance. So contemplative prayer is certainly one way of helping us transform and renewing our minds. There are other spiritual disciplines. I'll be talking with you more, God willing, in these following Sundays, as long as I'm here. Spiritual disciplines which are not meant to burden or impede us, but rather to free us. Free us from our own reactivity and crankiness. Free us from some of the traumatic experiences, even, that we may have lived through. Free us from what lies behind for life in the upward call of Christ Jesus. Free us from being curved in on ourselves, which is Luther's definition of sin, not naughtiness. I'll talk more about that some other Sunday, too. Being curved in on ourselves, but enabling us to open up to serve and love the neighbor and open our hearts and our minds as a grateful response to all we've been given. We've got our work cut out for us, don't we? As Dallas Willard writes, the pervasive practices of our Lord form the core of those very activities that through the centuries had stood as disciplines for the spiritual life. In other words, not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And then Willard says, it would seem only logical to emulate his daily actions. Remember how that word follow can also be, mean imitate? Remember? Since Jesus was the great master of the spiritual life, certainly we cannot hope, Dallas Willard says, to do his deeds without adopting his form of life. If salvation is to affect our lives, it can only do so by affecting our bodies, what we're living in right now. 
If we are to participate in the reign of God, it can only be by our actions. That's what Dallas Willard writes in a book that's called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Oh, I would love for us to do a series of adult forums on that book. What's in a name? Almost everything. Anna Chu, we heard from earlier, who described Jesus' humble beginnings. She also writes, from these humble beginnings, Jesus, whose holy name simply means to save or to heal, lives as God made flesh, who is not so much interested in dominance as in making the ordinary holy. The ordinary life of a 30-year-old man born in an occupied land is also the extraordinary life of Christ, the Son of the living God. Ordinary people become pillars of a new faith. Peter, the fisherman. Mary, the girl engaged to a carpenter. Matthew, the tax collector. Mary, the woman who went to put spices on the body of an executed teacher. These sinners become saints. Ordinary bread and wine becomes the holy body and blood of God. And in baptism, ordinary water becomes holy and washes ordinary people clean and welcomes them into the family of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Hachu continues by saying, we, we, ordinary people, ordinary flesh, are made holy by the God born in a stable in an occupied land. The name of Jesus makes the ordinary holy. Therefore, as we begin another ordinary year in the holy name of Jesus, let us pray that God would make our ordinary year holy. May we seek and find God this year in the ordinary, for God has made the ordinary sacred. May we find God in the poor children born in occupied lands, just as Jesus was. May we find God in the marginalized and oppressed of our own country, just as Jesus was marginalized and oppressed. May we find God in our ordinary neighbors, for the name of Jesus makes the ordinary holy. Thanks be to God.